Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is the program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we'll also be sharing some exciting opportunities for you. And please feel free to share this program with others who you know will also find it of interest. Today's program, as usual, is a special guest with a special topic, but it's a unique topic. And we're actually uh, beginning, a, beginning a kind of a dialogue about it. Ashley Perry is an international strategic and communications consultant and public relations advisor to many international leaders, governments, companies, organizations, and individuals in a variety of fields at the highest levels globally. He's currently advisor to Israel's Minister of Intelligence and Minister of Agriculture and Rural Development and Minister of Energy, Water, and Infrastructure. He was advisor to Israel's Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister from April 2009 until May of 2015, and has also worked with Israel's Minister of Defense, Minister of Tourism, International Security, Immigrant Absorption, and the Deputy Ministers of the, of the Interior and Foreign Affairs, as well as with the Chairman of the Knesset's Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, and has also worked in the Prime Minister's Office. Internationally, Ashley has served as Director of Communications for many Presidents, Prime Ministers, and political parties, as well as a strategic advisor to international, national, and municipal elections. He's a consultant to a variety of Israeli and international politicians and public figures, as well as political parties and leading international Jewish and Zionist organizations. Ashley was named as one of the five top immigrants from the United, from the United Kingdom who have made a significant contribution to help shape the state of Israel. Ashley was a delegate to the recent World Zionist Congress and the CEO of the Heritage Center for Middle Eastern and North African Jewry. He was also named as one of the top seven non-Hispanic, excuse me, he was named as one of the top seven Hispanic non-Christian global leaders by DLG Media. And that's where we're going to begin to get into the substance of today's conversation. Ashley is president of Reconotar if I pronounce that properly, an organization which seeks to reconnect with the over 200 million descendants of Spanish and Portuguese Jewish communities. And he's the director of the Knesset Caucus for reconnection with the descendant of Spanish and Portuguese Jewish communities. On a more personal level, before I moved to my new house last year, he and I were neighbors and we used to sit next to one another in synagogue. As much as I do in, in, in uh, cherish my intense conversations with God, I always look forward to sitting next to Ashley in synagogue, not just because he's a nice guy, but he's also loaded with incredible insights and on a host of topics and the opportunity for meaning conversation with him, as well as my conversation with God at the same time was always enjoyable. Today's conversation is about one of the topics about not only he's an expert, but is also very passionate. He's also, it's also the first of two about the significance of Hispanic Jewish relations, and the second of which will be an exciting panel uh, conversation that we will be hosting next week. Why do we even care? There's a fascinating trend to explore and understand the deep historic ties among among an estimated 25% of the Hispanic community with Jewish roots. Over the years, I've seen personally how there's tremendous deep interest and love and support for Israel, and for the Jewish people among Hispanics worldwide. It's important to understand our shared history, that it comes from the common ancestry and discuss many of the shared customs, traditions, and common roots, and to build upon these to restore the ties and learn about one another as Hispanics of Jewish descent are a bigger part or a part of a bigger chapter in Jewish history 
that connects to those who were forcibly ripped away from the Jewish people hundreds of years ago. Ashley, I'm, I'm excited about our conversation. We really didn't do a lot of prep for this. It came up as just me uh, asking you a question yesterday. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for making the time and welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Now, for people who just heard those few words from your mouth, if they were paying attention, they heard the Queen's English. You were, you were born in the UK. You began your education there. Explain your background. How, how are you someone from, from the United Kingdom who consider, who's, who's acknowledged as a, an, an Hispanic non-Christian, a Sephardi Jew? Where's your family from? What's that background? Um, okay, so I, I'll start a little bit uh, into maybe, uh, uh, you know, sort of prehistory or myth or, you know, we, we, we don't really know. The family tradition, as is true of many Sephardic Jews, and when I say Sephardic, I'm talking about the more narrow definition, not the wider Sephardic world, but these very specifically Iberian Sephardim, uh, Jews who, whose ancestry after the land of Israel, obviously, uh, is in the Iberian Peninsula today, known as Spain and Portugal. So according to family mythology, and again, uh, wider Sephardic mythology, uh, Jews arrived in the Iberian Peninsula uh, after the destruction of the First Temple. Uh, there is a theory that the um, those original uh, uh, exilees were from the ruling class, the royal family, uh, and were basically sent to the furthest reaches of the known worlds at that time. Um, in my particular, my real family name is Perez. Um, Perry is just a sort of anglicized version of that, but my real name and my birth certificate is Perez. And uh, in Hebrew, it's Peretz. It's always written with a Hebrew, uh, tzaddik as opposed to a Zion, uh, which again, according to family mythology is indicative of our royal Davidic roots, because obviously, as we know from reading the Bible, Peretz was the uh, ancestor of King David. Ah, right. Sure. That's great. So again, you know, is, is that true? Is that not? Who knows? According to our family coat of arms, we always had the lion of Judah. We always had the crown and the castle in our family coat of arms. So again, it, it doesn't necessarily say whether it's true, but it does speak to this, uh, you know, sort of family tradition. Uh, what I do know for sure is that my family originally came from Cordoba uh, in Spain. And in 1492, um, there was the famous uh, edict of expulsion by the Catholic monarchs, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, to the Jews to basically leave, convert or die. That, that was uh, the choice that was given. Uh, and um, To the entire the majority, Jewish community. Those who had not been forcibly converted. If we look throughout Spanish history, Spanish Jewish history, I should say, uh, Spanish Jews were forcibly converted on multiple occasions, first by the Visigoths, uh, then by the uh, extreme Omahayad uh, rulers. And then the most famous um, was under the, the, the sort of Catholic regime. The most famous and most widespread mass forcible conversions took place in 1391, where there were mass riots throughout the country, especially uh, in towns with sizable or cities with sizable Jewish uh, populations. And, uh, you know, obviously numbers are not exact on that. There's a big debate amongst historians, but probably tens of thousands of Jews are forcibly converted uh, throughout these riots in 1391, which means sometimes people were literally grabbed by their hair or they had their children removed from them and threatened if they did not go to the baptismal uh, uh, font, then they would be killed or they would have their children taken away, etc., etc. So from that point on, there was uh, a massive cleavage in uh, Spanish jury, in Sephardic jury, uh, which basically there were those who were not forcibly converted, luckily, and those who were forcibly converted. Uh, for many, many years, those communities carried on living together, and those who were forcibly converted, as uh, as is, is, should be obvious, they continued to uh, keep as much Jewish tradition as was possible. Um, obviously, the Catholic regime uh, was not happy about that, and they tried to find all different ways uh, to ensure that the new Catholics, uh, new Christians, as they were called at the time, or conversos, uh, became as Catholic as possible. So they tried to uh, disconnect the two communities. So they tried all sorts of things by putting the Jews in uh, separate uh, ghettos. Uh, the word ghetto hadn't been created at that point, but that's basically what they were, juderias or whatever you want to call it. 
Yeah. When you say ghettos for Jews, do you mean people who were converted or people who didn't no, convert? People who didn't convert, because okay. according to Catholic doctrine, once you have uh, received the baptism of waters, whether it was willingly or not, you are now a Catholic. You are no longer a Jew. Okay. Uh, but basically, they tried all sorts of things. And then in uh, 1480, they brought uh, the Spanish Inquisition, which tried to weed out any what they call Judaizing Christians. In other words, uh, these new Christians who still adhered to Jewish tradition. And that didn't work. Uh, the leaders of the Catholic Church went to the king and queen and basically said to them, these new Christians will never become good Christians until uh, there are no uh, Jewish influences around them anymore. Because as you can imagine, they intermarried, they had meals together, they would uh, uh, make kosher meats, they would give them wine, they would help them with the festivals, etc., etc., Shabbat. And the theory was until uh, you get rid of this Judaizing presence, uh-huh. uh, these uh, good Christians, uh, they will not be good Christians. So in 1492, uh, the Edict of Expulsion was written, uh, signed by the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, as I said, gave the Jews uh, those three choices, convert, die, or leave. Got it. Uh, my family took the most, I would say, popular route, which uh, made the most sense if you look back uh, in those days. Couldn't take an airplane, you know, uh, boarding a boat was very difficult. Many people did, and they went off to the Ottoman Empire uh, and to North Africa. But uh, many of those boats were run by unscrupulous captains who used to throw all the Jews into the sea once they were out. They used to sell them into slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So the most obvious uh, route was uh, the only, well, one of the only land routes available to them. It was into Portugal. And the Portuguese welcomed at first. They had to pay a sort of uh, entry tax, but many, uh, many went over that border. Uh, and uh, what happened was in 1497, uh, the king, uh, Manuel uh, of Portugal, wanted to marry the daughter of Ferdinand Isabella. I think she was also called Isabella, the daughter. Oh, and wow. um, the king and queen basically made a, <clears throat> a condition uh, they saw that the Jews who went to Portugal were doing well for the economy. They were, uh, you know, really improving the social, economic, political, diplomatic, uh, uh, intellectual life in Portugal. But they basically didn't want that. Uh, so they said, OK, we will give you our daughter as long as you expel your Jews as well. Manuel, who is quite a wily uh, figure, understood that he didn't want to expel his Jews because of all those reasons. So what he did is he said, uh, officially, I'm going to expel everybody. All those uh, uh, Jews who want to leave have to gather in the port of Lisbon on a certain date. And many, if not most, of the Jews of Portugal gathered uh, in the Rossio Square in Portugal, in, in Lisbon, and waited for these ships, which simply did not come. Uh, they were surrounded by the army, and they were basically said, uh, told to convert, and they refused to convert. Then their children were taken away, many of them and were sent off to islands, uninhabited islands. They tried to put so much pressure on these Jews. They tried everything. Days and days, these people didn't drink, they didn't eat, or minimally, until in the end, uh, Catholic priests went around, threw holy water over the crowd, oh, and that was wow. it. Overnight, no more Jews. For, at first, at least for a generation or two, there was a sort of wink and a nod. Okay, you know, we're not going to bring the Inquisition, we're not going to sit uh, too hard on you. We're not going to watch everything you do. Carry on as you like, at least in private. So the the Jews or the forcibly converted Jews carried on uh, as they were to a, to a to a certain extent. Then the then I think it was the the son or the grandson uh, came along who was far more vir- virulent anti-Semite and basically brought the Inquisition and and put an end to that sort of you know uh, carry on as you were attitude. And it was then at the beginning of the 16th century, that my family uh, fled. They fled through France to Hamburg and then through to Amsterdam, where they uh, were one of the formative members of the historic Amsterdam Sephardic community. And 360-odd years ago, after the English Civil War, uh, Oliver Cromwell was convinced that, uh, uh, as, as a religious Christian, that uh, the Messiah would not return, that Jesus would not return until the Jews were spread out into the four corners of the earth. And and obviously at that point, there hadn't been any Jews in England for hundreds of years because there was an expulsion, I think in 1190 or 1290, I can't remember exactly. 
and he believed that that was an impediment uh, to the messianic era because obviously England being one of the if not the world powers uh, right. not having any Jews was a problem so he invited uh, a number of families uh, a very small amount of families I think 12 or 14 or, or maybe even a bit less and my family was amongst that so we've been living in England ever since uh, the first Jews not just in England, but in the United States, in Latin America, in wow. many parts of Western Europe, were all Sephardim, were Spanish Jews escaping the Inquisition. They spoke both Spanish and Portuguese. They sometimes had Spanish and Portuguese names. My family used uh, names, as I, as I said before, they used the, the Z, or as I would say, the Z at the end of Perez. Sometimes they use the S, which would be more Portuguese in nature, Spanish. Uh, sure. Um, and eventually, um, they just became anglicized in the last generation. We use Perry, uh, but our name is, is still Perry. So, so those are my roots. I'm a member of what's called the Spanish and Portuguese Jewish community or Western Sephardim. Okay. We still have certain Spanish uh, uh, songs in, uh, or, or, or sayings in our liturgy. Our culture, our music is very Hispanic in nature. Uh, even though, unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese, we still say prayers. As I said, we, we have table songs in the Shabbat in uh, Judeo-Spanish, Judeo-Portuguese. It's different from the Ladino or the Judeo-Spanish of those who went to the Ottoman Empire. Ours was a more evolved and modern Spanish because our people used to dip in and out of the Iberian Peninsula because they had family there, they had, they had trade interests, business interests, et cetera, et cetera. So we always kept a very close, and still to this day, we have a very uh, a strong uh, affinity to our Hispanic roots, to our Spanish and Portuguese roots, right. whether it's culturally, linguistically, uh, in terms of food, in terms of uh, music, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my background. And for us, these moments in time, whether they're in the 14th or 15th century, the Inquisition, the expulsion, the forcible conversion are very much part of our identity and heritage. We still say every day of atonement, Yom Kippur, we still say a prayer for our brethren imprisoned in the Inquisition dungeons. Wow. And that's quite a remarkable thing. 130 years after the Inquisition uh, ceased to exist formally and hundreds of years before the last public burning. That's incredible. Um, you know, even if, uh, you and I have never had this conversation and it's fascinating because you do get a sense of this really unique history. Um, not, not only the Spanish Portuguese and the Hispanic connection, but also the, the fact that your family was one of the first Jewish families in, in uh, England at the time. That, that's really quite incredible. I'm glad you mentioned how it was that Jews ended up in Spain to begin with as the expulsion after the destruction of the first temple. Sometimes a lot of people just assume that, oh yeah, Jews are all over the world, but it was only because of the expulsion. But you mentioned something that was really fascinating and especially fascinating to speak this week. We just received another plane load of, uh, of immigrants from Ethiopia who are, who are the legend is that they're uh, uh, descendants of the tribe of Dan. And we know their descendants coming back from India who uh, pe people coming back from India who were descendants of the tribe of Men how we say in Hebrew Menashe? Um, do you have any sense? You mentioned that your family was the, of the ruling class. That that's the legend. What tribe your family originally was from? Well, if they were from the tribe of Perez, that would have been Judeans from the tribe of Judah. Judah that was the royal. That was the royal tribe. Well, which makes sense then if you have a lion in the in the. Okay, I, I just wanted to, to clarify that. Um, that this is all amazing. So. So you, you mentioned the, the singing and the, and the, and the customs. Um, what other, is there something else? Like if I were to come in, I, I've, we've never done Shabbat together, I don't think. But if I were to come to your house on Shabbat or another time, what am I going to see or feel differently? Well, I have to say, first of all, my wife is Ashkenazi. So yes. the cooking is very much, um, <clears throat> excuse me, according to what she knows and what she likes and, you know. Um, and for those who well, don't know, Ashkenazi Jews are like myself, Jews whose families were dispersed to to what's Western and Eastern Europe. Um, will, will there be more instances of us having blue eyes than uh, than, than you? I mean, not necessarily, but I would say, <laughs> by the way, that uh, I would say I, I don't know percentages, but certainly a very high percentage, if not the majority of Ashkenazim. Uh, Eastern or Central European Jews are originally also Sephardim because if we look at uh, the migratory true. pattern true. 
after 1492, there right. were those who fled into the interior. In Poland, which today anyone who's, con who's considered a Polish Jew would automatically consider themselves an Ashkenazi Jew, uh, there were certain towns and cities where only Sephardim, they wouldn't even let Ashkenazim live there. There was, it was such a, I'll give you an example, Klein, the name Klein, which is a, you know, very famous and well-known Ashkenazi name is actually Catan. And usually those people can trace their family back to Spain. Spain huh. and Portugal, by the way, are offering, well, Spain have now closed it, but Portugal is still offering, and I'm in the process myself, and various family members have obtained it. They're offering citizenship to those who can trace their ancestry to the uh, Iberian Peninsula, uh, like myself. Uh, and they have a whole list of surnames which show uh, potential heritage. And there's many Ashkenazi names like Klein on there. Ah, and, uh, sure. Show there. Uh, so there was a time, again, there's a debate about figures in this period because obviously censuses were more difficult and numbers and all that. But the, I've heard numbers as much as 90% of all Jews in the world at one point lived in the Iberian Peninsula. So whether, wherever you come from today, whether it's Morocco, Russia, uh, the US, there is a good likelihood, strong likelihood that you have some Sephardic uh, ancestry. I've met people who are, quote unquote, the whitest Russians you've ever met in your life. They did their DNA and they found Sephardic ancestry. So many uh, Ashkenazim. Anyway, but to go back to your question. Sure. Uh, probably the most the most uh, prominent uh, uh, feature of our Shabbat is after after we eat, you say grace after meals, you say Berkat Amazon. First of all, all of these are are slightly different uh, in the Sephardic tradition, as well, certainly in the Western Sephardic tradition. Um, but afterwards, we say this song. We sing the song. I haven't got a good voice. So I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> uh, called Bendigamos, and it's all in um, it's all in a sort of Judeo-Spanish with a little bit of Portuguese and and other influences. Um, we also say uh, different uh, uh, songs around Havdalavi, the ceremony to end the Sabbath. Um, and there's there's a few others uh, dotted around. Uh, the music, the sound, the influences are very Hispanic, very Baroque even, uh, I would argue. Um, so that's probably the major differences. My prayer book is certainly very different, not just from the Ashkenazi prayer book, but also from um, other Sephardim. We are relatively unique in our uh, Western Sephardic tradition that where we fled, there were no other Jews. So we kept a very, what we claim oh. at least, a very original Sephardic uh, tradition. We didn't uh, uh, sort of meld, you know, the, the Jews who fled to Morocco, there were two groups called the Mustarabim, the, the Jews who were more indigenous to Morocco, and the Mugorashim, the Jews who were expelled. And they used to represent two very distinct communities with two very distinct traditions. Um, but eventually over the years, they sort of melted into one. And that was true in Turkey and Greece and all the other Syria and all the other places that Sephardim fled to. Uh, but our communities, whether it's in Amsterdam, in New York, in Rhode Island, in London, in Brazil, in other places, we kept very much, um, you know, sort of our, our Iberian traditions because there were no other Jewish communities, at least at first, right. uh, to necessarily, um, you know, sort of melt our culture to, melt, to, to, to mix into that's fascinating i want to take a break now you mentioned morocco and come back and tell you a personal story then and then continue the conversation if you're a parent like me you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids but there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing online pornography as kids spend more and more time online they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates by age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious lasting consequences. Even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. 
And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123 at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. So um, so I'm so glad, actually, that you mentioned Morocco. I forgot about it, um, but it doesn't make me uh, a Sephardi Jew. But one of my mother's cousins intermarried with a Moroccan Muslim whose last name was Gassous. And after my mother died, I think it, oh, you and I were, were say, saying Kaddish at the same time, 16 years ago, uh, right? Yeah, I remember that. Um, Kaddish is the memorial prayer for the year after a parent dies. Um, and after my mother died, I connected with one of the cousins, my Moroccan cousin, second, third cousins, who told me something fascinating that, that on both sides of her family, both from her mother and from her father, she had Jewish descent that in 1492, her father's family left Spain and went to Morocco and changed their name to Gesus because it sounds or is sounds something like Jesus. And that's how they hid out. And, and that, and I don't know, you just talked about the, the communities intermingling, but in her case, her, her father's family, well, they became Muslim and, uh, and, and her father, who I remember fondly was, uh, was a secular, uh, secular Muslim in Morocco, but it's, it's, it, that doesn't give me any Sephardi blood, but it's a fascinating, right. uh, story of the, uh, meandering of the Jewish people around the world. But yeah, actually, let's dig into that, the demographics. I mean, when you just said at one point, and it makes sense, after the, after the destruction of the first temple, when pretty much all Jews were dispersed from here, it makes sense that if Jews went as far as Spain, that, that a large number, if not a majority, would be there. And you said as, mu- as much as 90%. But now when we speak about Hispanic-Jewish relations, I think, of, I think of Central and South America. I think of, um, of m- many of my Hispanic friends across the United States and, and of course, millions who I don't know. What's, so help, help, me, help everyone understand, what's the demographic that we're talking about? So first of all, I should say <clears throat> the time where most Jews came to the Iberian Peninsula was after the Second Temple destruction, and certainly around the um, what was called the sort of Golden Age of Spain, which was under more moderate Muslim rule, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims probably had the best sort of age where they learned together intellectually. Things moved forward very quickly. There was a lot of interaction. There was a lot of <clears throat> A sort of uh, interfaith understanding and, and, and you know there were lots of occasions where religious or leading Jews, Christians and Muslims would sit and discuss religion, theology together. It was the time of the Ramban, the famous Maimonides uh, and, and various others. Uh, so because especially what was going on in parts of Europe and elsewhere where there were pogroms, there were massacres, there were expulsions, so many found their way to you know the, the most enlightened uh, place around and that was Spain again, it, whether you, it didn't last too long because a couple of hundred years later we will see. But what what's most interesting, and, and just to go back to my story, whereas my family managed to flee at the beginning of the 15th century, the vast majority of those who had been forcibly converted were not able to flee. Uh, don't forget, uh, for those who who, who know history, there were, the Inquisition represented a very sinister regime, I would say almost Gestapo-like, where they monitored everything that someone under their jurisdiction, which was a forcibly converted Jew, a, a, a now a, a Catholic, uh, would do. If they saw, for example, that people would not have their chimneys, any smoke coming out of their chimneys on Saturday, that could ah. be a reason to be thrown into an inquisitorial uh, 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 prison. If someone was considered not eating pork, if someone uh, ate, uh, abstained from bread around Passover, all these, wow. many, they had a whole list. You can actually even see in inquisitorial records, they have a whole list of things to look out for. One should remember a few things. First of all, if you uh, gave a name to the Inquisition and they were found guilty, you would get half of their assets. So oh, wow. this was obviously considered, everyone would be looking out for any little thing. And obviously, you can imagine that incentivization led to a lot of uh, of these people. Anyone who had a, any Jewish ancestry were immediately under suspicion and would live their lives in terror. They were not allowed to leave the country. 
they were not allowed to do all sorts of things. So it was very, very difficult. So I, my family was one of the lucky ones. I would say that my family is one of the very, very few who managed to flee, who managed to get away. The overwhelming majority were not able to flee. The one thing they were able to do eventually is move to territories that were under the Spanish or Portuguese regime. And when Christopher Columbus went across the ocean uh, to the New World, uh, the first voyages, not just the first voyages, for decades, a large number, again, it's impossible to know exact uh, numbers, but I know people have studied the, the ship logs, a very high percentage were these conversos, were these uh, crypto Jews or new Christians or whatever you want to call it, uh, call them. Uh, what we do know is there were many complaints from priests in the new world during those first decades or, or centuries that said there are so many Jews here and they're going back to uh, practice uh, Judaism. We know in the territories of uh, the first ever synagogue in the Americas was in a place called Recife in northern Brazil. There's still a synagogue from today. That was the first Jewish community in the Americas. Uh, and basically it was under Dutch rule for a time where they were allowed to return, revert to Judaism, and then it was conquered by the Portuguese. Um, and some of these had to flee. By the way, that's how the first Jews reached America, because some of those who fled uh, basically tried to get back to Amsterdam, uh, where they could return to their Jewish life because there was a thriving Jewish community in Amsterdam. And they were, there's a whole story, they were shipwrecked and then taken by pirates. And eventually they were dumped in what was then known as New Amsterdam. There was a big negotiation because Peter Stuyvesant, the governor at the right. time, did not want uh, Jews in his territory and wouldn't allow them to come ashore. But because uh, Amsterdam was uh, sort of in charge of New, Am uh, New Amsterdam at the, at the time, and the Jews were very prominent financially and politically, they made sure that Peter Stuyvesant uh, accepted uh, these Jews. And that's the that was the first Jewish community in the US, which created the extremely large and significant American Jewish community. So the first Jews in America were, forced, were descended of forcibly converted Jews running away from the Inquisition, which many people do not know. Right, that's fascinating. So, but now, when we're speaking of Hispanics now, we're typically not speaking of, uh, of, of a relatively small uh, portion of the uh, Jewish community in the Americas. We're speaking about Hispanics. You mentioned Catholics. Many are right. Catholic. Many are evangelical Christians. Um, those are the, the, the those are the people who I'm working with. Um, how many people are we talking about? Like you you mentioned ninety percent. What let, let let's start to talk about well, the magnitude. Well, I should say ninety percent. I would say when I say ninety percent, again, there's a dispute about that. Even, of course, ninety percent. Uh, there was at one point at the beginning of the last millennia, around the tenth, eleventh. 12th century, when 90% of all world Jewry lived in the Arabian Peninsula. We do know that there were hundreds of thousands of Jews, um, you know, sort of around the time of the expulsion. And as I said, the vast majority were forcibly converted and were simply, that was it. They integrated uh, into the wider Christian community. Many times they kept uh, their traditions in secret. As I said, in northern Brazil, there's many, many, many still who have traditions. I, I've heard that in the north of Brazil, there are many Christians who keep a seven-day mourning period, which is not something found in Christianity, which is a Jewish tradition. There are families who would never eat pork. They said it's not in our digestive system to eat oh. pig. Uh, there are people who would eat, uh, wouldn't eat bread around Easter. You know, many of these people didn't know when Passover was exactly, but they knew it was around the time of Easter. Or they had uh, a day, uh, a patron saint of Esther, uh, who was a very important figure for them because she was the first uh, person who had to hide their identity for the greater good. Um, there's many, many, I, I can talk of dozens of, uh, of, of, uh, of traditions which people in Latin America, in North America, around Europe and even Asia keep because their ancestors were forcibly, forcibly converted. Now, a, a couple of years ago, there was a very interesting international uh, DNA uh, study really to undertaken by about 40 or 50 academics who wanted to get to the root of where do the, where do the people of Latin America come from? What is their, where is their uh, uh, roots? And they, you know, they wanted to just find out where they're from. And the most surprising data that they found was one in four, uh, one quarter, 25% of all 
those in Latin America have significant Jewish ancestry. And when I say significant, I'm talking about over 5%, which is significant. That means one in four people in uh, Latin America have significant Jewish ancestry. Now there are plenty of others who have less significant, maybe 1%, 2%, 3%, but that means that they still have that Jewish ancestry. So if you extrapolate that into numbers, uh, including all those places around the world where, where these people fled to, we're talking easily 200 million people around the world whose ancestors were forcibly converted Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, were Hispanic, Sephardim. Um, and what is interesting is today in the 21st century, due to uh, this the surge of interest in ancestry, whether DNA tests, whether it's genealogical uh, interest with all these websites that can help you trace your ancestry, whether it's simple Google searches, People are now Googling, why did my family light two candles on a Friday night? Where does this strange wow. tradition come from? And they're finding it was a Jewish tradition. I'm contacted every single day by people who kept these strange traditions that no one else around them kept, or sometimes other people would, but not many. Or they uh, they did certain things, which was a little bit strange. They Google it and they find out, and they want to understand more. They want in some way to reconnect. And that's why we called our organization Reconectar, which means reconnect in Spanish and Portuguese, to really help those who are interested in their voyage of discovery of this Jewish ancestry. And it's really a reconnection because the Hispanic and Jewish people have this historic connection. We have deep roots together. Uh, it's not just a sort of uh, a vague, uh, you know, familiarity uh but it's it's really something our our peoples are are tied by history by ancestry by blood by roots if you if you look at it as i said if if just one in four hispanics have significant jewish ancestry and many others probably have less than five percent right it means our peoples are deeply deeply intertwined and what's important even for those who don't have jewish ancestry is to understand this deep foundational uh, connection that we have because most people when they think of Jews they think of Ashkenazim they think of Spielberg yeah. named or you know uh, bacon and locks eating or, or or whatever else it is speaking maybe Yiddish or throwing Yiddish into conversations which is Germanic uh, uh, Judeo-German uh, but actually right. the Jewish people are really originally a very much Hispanic people as I said very few of us today uh, still have this culture, although there are still many, by the way, there's a whole community in Seattle, uh, which just speak Judeo-Spanish because at the beginning of the 20th century, many of those Jews who had fled to, to now what's known as Greece and Turkey, wherever they lived, they still spoke Spanish at home. They still very much kept the Spanish, Hispanic uh, language, uh, tradition, culture alive. So there are some uh, pockets around the world of very Hispanic uh, uh, Jews. But as I said, the majority, I would say, yeah, I would say the majority of Jews around the world have Hispanic roots and a very sizable number of Hispanics have Jewish roots. So it shows that our sure. people are deeply intertwined. I've never thought about doing a DNA test because I know where my family ended up after, <clears throat> I, I know where my family ended up uh, in, in the 1940s and ended, and except for those who, uh, were able to get out but as you mentioned which is which is true and i knew this that uh when during the inquisition many spanish jews fled to poland and the fact that my family was in poland for centuries kind of makes me curious now whether whether i'm at all part sardi as compared to the white skin blue eye person ashkenazi that i've always identified as um it's fascinating i just want to correct one thing i don't remember exactly how you phrase it but you talked about where we're originally from. Uh, let's just, I, I don't want people oh, okay. to think. Yeah. Right. Origi we're originally from here where you and right. I live. Of course, of course. In the Judean mountains. And it's important just to underscore right. that. And it's, and, and the, the product of the dispersion, yes. first temple and the second temple. Of course. Um, well, actually, even, even um, the enslavement in Egypt prior to there being a temple, that these are all important. Uh, Important things. and before and before that, the land of Israel. Uh, correct, correct, hundred um, percent. Let's take another quick break, and then I want to come back and and speak about actually the really interesting modern 
connections where we're seeing the, 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 these numbers and inquiries that you're getting surfacing. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so Ashley, this is, I mean, it's really fascinating and I hope people are, uh, I hope this is interesting more than just to Hispanics because we're talking about a fascinating piece of Jewish history with today as many as 200 million people having significant uh, Jewish uh, Jewish ancestry, and and when you told when you said the number that that significant means at least five percent, I think wow that's really incredible because over how many centuries we're talking about fleeing and intermarrying and moving, to to maintain even that amount is is really quite significant, um, and and then I was trying to try and think of okay two hundred million people well that's two hundred million is approximately two-thirds of the United States. We're talking about a huge number of people, and that's just with significant ancestry. Certainly greater, certainly greater in the Jewish people, around 14 to 15 million in the world. There you today. go. Exactly. Exactly. And and by the way, you and then then when you throw in, which is also this fascinating part of Jewish history, I was speaking to a friend uh, on my last trip. She's a um a, a, a Syrian Christian, originally from Iran, and we were speaking about the tribe of Menasha returning from India. And she said, yeah, well, they're Iranian. I said, no, they're from India. And she said to me, well, where do you think they ended up first before they got to India? So, so we're all, we're all over the place and it is fascinating. And we also know if we were to do DNA tests on, on many of our neighbors, we would find um, not just cousins from Abraham, but many, many who, who converted. Um, How, you mentioned some of the customs that people would still observe today and and not even knowing necessarily why they're doing it, but just it's a family tradition. Someone listening here, how do they, and particularly someone who's Hispanic, how do they even do more than scratch their head? But what are the clues that their yeah. family might be uh, descendants of Jews? Well, obviously the traditions, the family traditions, uh, you know, there's many who would have kept it for centuries, but maybe in the 21st century, they, they may have, or even the 20th century, they may have fallen by the wayside. So just because you don't have necessary family traditions does not mean your ancestors were not Jewish. There are many clues. Uh, one of the clues, certainly not definitive clue, but one of the clues is the family name. Uh, many of the names which we associate today as Hispanic or Latino names, whether that's Perez, my name, Gonzalez, Ferreira, uh, Lopez, you know, all of these names. We have a database of 11,000 names, pretty much all of the Hispanic and Latino names are there, have, are indicative of some Jewish ancestry because um, at the time of the forcible conversions, you were sometimes given a family who would sort of adopt you. And then you were named... A Catholic after, family. Yeah, uh, uh, sort of to look after you. It wasn't... It wasn't wasn't a nice thing necessarily. They were supposed to keep an eye on you. And if the fam- if the patriarch of the family was called Gonzalo, you would now have to adopt the name Gonzalez. So again, not to say every single person with the name Gonzalez has Jewish ancestry, but it is certainly a possibility. And if you go to our website, which is called Name Your Roots, and you put your family name in, nameyourroots.com. Uh, dot com, uh, okay. you can find uh, more about the family name. Uh, that's one way. There, as I said, there are many, many different ways uh, that one can, uh, as uh, every day I'm hearing fascinating stories. I'll just give one uh, example of a woman who contacted me who lives in California. And she told me that um, she grew up a uh, uh, Christian, um, originally from Latin America. Um, and she came to Israel on a on a, a tour, you know, the Holy Land. And she started seeing all these traditions, which to her seemed very familiar, whether it's lighting wow. candles, uh, whether it's uh, doing certain things. And she was just fascinated. And it really confused her as well. She went back to her father and said, her father was apparently very ill at the time. 
or, or dying or whatever, said, I want to know who are we? Because there'd always been this mystery about their roots. And he turned to her and said, Somos judíos. We are Jews. Wow. And he, she said to him, well, why did we never know? And he told her a fascinating story that when he was younger, he also found out that they had this Jewish ancestry. And he was uh, interested in maybe doing something about it. He was enlisted into the American army during the Second World War. And during the Second World War, he was one of those liberators of the concentration camps. And he saw what was done to the Jews and he decided the world wasn't ready. And he didn't want to uh, be on the end of that anti-Semitism, that brutal, violent, genocidal anti-Semitism, which we witnessed. So he decided it's best to keep it secret for another generation. But now his daughter came out and now his daughter goes to a synagogue, considers herself Jewish, uh, just because of coming to the Holy Land and seeing these traditions. There's just so, so many of them. The one way, I mean, genealogy is a relatively complicated art. It's becoming easier today, uh, relatively speaking. Also, we're, what, one of the projects which a good friend and colleague is doing is digitizing the inquisitorial records. Now, why that's important at the time, as I said, it was Gestapo-like, KGB-like, where it would follow everything about everyone's life. In fact, some of my family members found our ancestors as a result of inquisitorial records. Um, so, but now we can use them for good. We can find out where our ancestors were, who they were, even what jobs they did. It's amazing the detailed information they have. And once that's online, the next person who wants to find their ancestry it becomes a little bit easier because it's a, a medieval Castilian Spanish. It's very difficult to get hold of these old books, dusty books in libraries. By the way, there's also in New Mexico where a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, these crypto Jews fled to. And but it's still a very difficult thing to do for the average person. Uh, the best way to find out if you do have this Iberian uh, a Jewish ancestry, and that's also for Ashkenazim like yourself, if you want to know, the only DNA company that I'm aware of is Family Tree DNA, which tests for Iberian Jewish heritage. So anyone who's interested, I mean, this is not this is not an advert. I, I don't get money for this. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, I've done a bit of research about this and while other companies will say they test for Sephardic ancestry, they're usually referring to Middle East or North African Sephardic ancestry. The only Correct. one that I'm aware of, it's a company in America uh, that tests for specifically Iberian Jewish ancestry is Family Tree DNA. So if you want to know the quickest route to do it is to do uh, the DNA test through Family Tree DNA. Uh, I'm intrigued. I've never, I'm 57 years old and I don't know, the whole DNA thing isn't probably not existing most of my life but I've never been interested until this moment. Uh, and I, uh, I don't know, maybe, who knows? Maybe I'll apply for uh, Portuguese citizenship with you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, well, you better hurry up because they're closing it. They're September. closing it. <laughs> some, some of my relatives want to apply for Polish citizenship. I'm not so interested in that. Um, it's funny you mentioned actually New Mexico. I, uh, as you're speaking, I'm remembering a dear friend, Pete Duran, who uh, died a few years ago. Um, he was a Native American and he always talked about his Jewish roots and 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 some of these traditions that his I wanted to rem if I remember correctly his grandmother used to keep. Is there any? I mean, you mentioned New Mexico. Duran is a is an extremely famous rabbinical family name, uh, especially in the years after the expulsion. The Duran family. There was a few different generations of rabbis who were most some of the most prominent rabbis in the world, and they gave they were asked many times, and and we still refer to them, halachic Jewish legal opinions on what the status should be under Jewish law of people who are forcibly converted. The Duran family is a very well-known Sephardic rabbinical name. Uh, and so it, it would make sense that someone with that name would have uh, that Jewish ancestry. How how would he, his family, have have be, become then na what we call today Native American? Well, maybe they have some Native American. Ah, I see. Don't forget, we are all, you know, none of us are pure anything. There's, there's really no such thing in, in the world today of, you know, 100% purity of any ethnic or national uh, uh, line. So I know plenty of people who have Native American. In fact, I would say probably if you if you talk about uh, Latin America, you know, a, a large number, if not the majority of those who have significant Jewish ancestry, almost certainly have some indigenous American uh, ancestry as well. So and in America, and I know this uh, this woman. Who, who created this organization called Indigenous. It says Indigenous, but it's Indi-Jew-ness. 
uh, celebrating oh. those who have indigenous American, uh, uh, Native American ties and Jewish ties. So there's an organization specifically for these type of people showing how many there are. That's fascinating. Um, I want to I, I want to just kind of begin to wrap up the conversation. So, Ashley, you you mentioned or we've been talking about 1492 as the day, uh, the, the period in history when the Inquisition took place. I grew up in America, you know, little kids learning American history, knowing about Christopher Columbus, singing songs about Christopher Columbus, discovering the new world. And there always been discussion and Jews want to take pride often in who, who, who might have been Jewish, who is Jewish. They're fun lists to look at. But one of the discussions always has been about whether the fact, whether Christopher Columbus might have been Jewish, was Jewish, maybe wasn't Jewish. Intuitively, if he, if he left Spain in 1492, okay, that, makes, that kind of makes sense. Uh, and, I, and I was speaking with um, a, a friend who's a pastor on my advisory board, um, her last name happens to be Alvarez, so she, maybe she's uh, a descendant also of Jews. And and she was saying she had a fabulous theory, which was that Columbus had to have been Jewish. And just as you mentioned earlier, uh, relation to uh, connection to Esther, she quoted the scripture that maybe Columbus was like Esther, a hidden Jew, picked for a time such as this to discover the new world, to bring the blessing and maybe even a little bit like you discussed about Cromwell wanting to have Jews. I don't know if that was particular on a religious basis, but what do you know about the possibility of Christopher Columbus having been Jewish? So I'll talk a little bit about facts and fiction and possibility. First of all, on Christopher Columbus himself, we don't know. The bottom line is historians have tried to pick apart this and there's a, a, a raging debate. Some say there's plenty of evidence to show that he was Jewish. They say the way he wrote, there's certain indications in the letters. Um, others say, no, he wasn't. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's something best left to historians. I don't think we'll ever know. But what we do know, uh, going back to what you said before, is that those who financed this trip were Jews. Uh, many people don't know that. People thought it was crown money. Uh, but a, uh, Yeah, that's what I always knew. The crown never used its own money. <laughs> you know, if you look around uh, history, you know, the royal families always like to use private money rather than their own money. And so uh, the people who stepped up for this particular thing were uh, two very prominent Jews, probably the most prominent Jews in that chapter of Jewish history in Spain, were uh, Don Isaac Abravanel and Abraham uh, Senor, um, uh, who Again, if you look up history, you can find fascinating debates in the end, who was expelled, who was not. Uh, uh, the Ravenel family expelled, went to Italy. Uh, Senor family were forced, allowed, he allowed himself to be forcibly converted. Ironically, his, his uh, uh, descendants actually did return to Judaism. But regardless of that, they funded it. Why did they fund it? Because they believed that they would find the lost tribes of Israel if you wow. circumnavigate the world going west. Wow. Um, so they actually believe that they were fulfilling Jewish destiny, prophecy, uh, by funding this. Uh, that we know for sure. An interesting myth, we don't know, obviously, if this is true, and it probably isn't, but it's a nice uh, sort of snippet of uh, 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 history, which actually has some historical uh, truth to it. What we do know Whatever we do or don't know about Columbus, we do know that most of his senior crew were forcibly converted Jews. Um, and uh, he took them because they knew multiple languages. Don't forget those who created the instruments for Columbus and many of the other um, discoverers around that time um, was Abraham Zacuto, which was the Jew who invented all these still used today instruments which help you circumnavigate the seas. Uh, by looking at the heavens, by looking at the stars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it made sense for him to take a lot of Jews, quote unquote. Um, and what we what we do know is when they uh, landed and they went into the interior looking again for what they thought perhaps would be Jews, uh, the first mate who obviously, uh, I can't remember his, his name, uh, but was obviously proficient in, in Hebrew uh, because there was this 
myth that they believed that uh, they were finding lost tribes of Jews, the first words that were called out when they encountered a local indigenous people was Hebrew, that they tried to engage them in Hebrew because they believed that they were lost. Wow. Uh, lost tribe. Now, do we know for sure that's true? Probably not. <coughs> but we do know that the first mate and those who went on the expedition, many of the prominent uh, members of the crews were uh, forcibly converted Jews. And as I said, in all those first voyages, because if you had an opportunity to escape the center of terror, the center of the Inquisition, you would take it. So as many of these crypto Jews, secret Jews, uh, conversos, whatever you want to call them, took every opportunity they could to get away. And all these boats were going across the ocean. So it made sense that many of them uh, were Jews. Now, do we know Christopher Columbus was one of them? It's, it's possible. Uh, he was Italian. Uh, but also don't forget many uh, Italians uh, who were originally Spanish, uh, forcibly converted Jews. It's interesting as well, we, we've been talking about Hispanics, but there is a significant number of Italian Americans who also have uh, Sephardic ancestry because many of those Jews who fled uh, the Iberian Peninsula ended up in Italy, especially in the southern parts and in Sicily. Uh, and many American uh, Italians or Italian Americans can trace their ancestry to that. There's again a, a going into myth uh, a little bit. Again, there's a, there was actually a book written on why the Italian and Jewish mafias had such good relations because the Italians <laughs> understood that they had this Jewish ancestry. And again, is that true? Who knows? But we do know that a significant number of Italian Americans also have this Sephardic, Iberian, Hispanic, Jewish uh, ancestry. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And who knows how many people are in North America, in Latin America, in other places around the world who have, by the way, there's, there's communities in Indonesia, in India, in Goa, because these are places the Inquisition came to or Portuguese or Dutch Jews fled to. So the amount of places around the world, I, I use 200 million, and that's probably even a conservative number. There's probably more than that, but there are wow. tens of millions hundreds of millions of people around the world who all can trace their ancestry to this important moment in Jewish history where hundreds of thousands of Jews were overnight forced, well, not overnight, for a period of time, yeah. were forcibly uh, converted. So there is a reawakening, there is an understanding, there is a, a growing interest and knowledge, and my personal belief that it's time for this reconnection to happen, and again, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not trying to convert anyone. I'm not trying to convince someone of anything theologically, but I believe that it is a, an important and vital moment that the two communities understand the presence of each other, that understand our historic connections, and seek some sort of reconnection based on these uh, these shared ties, history and ancestry. Beautiful. So as I mentioned, thank you. So I mentioned at the outset, this is now the first of a two part. Uh, conversation. Next week, we're speaking with a couple of Hispanic leaders um, who who uh, who I'll be who I'll be at a conference with where I'm speaking to 300 Hispanic leaders, um, bu building that connection. And you're giving me a lot of the Hebrew word of schizok, a lot of um, encouragement that this is it's not just a um, a public relations thing, but it's actually using the the the, the name of your organization, a reconnection. When I'm standing in front of uh, 300 Hispanic leaders in Nashville next week, what's what's the what's the message that I should be delivering? Or th that that's that's special. I think because we have these historic ties, most people don't know about this. By the way, on either side, the Jewish people or the Hispanic people, I would say 99% of people on either side just don't know about these historic ties. They see the other side as okay. We may like them. We may get along with them theologically or, or, or politically or diplomatically or whatever it is, but they don't, they're not aware of these shared roots. And I believe that it is this shared roots, this shared ancestry that can be and should be a basis for some sort of reconnection, for some sort of understanding uh, that can really shape uh, Latino, Hispanic, uh, Jewish ties uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. By the way, uh, you know, not not to go too far into this, but it's even biblically um, uh, as part of biblical prophecy. If you look at the prophet uh, Avadia, 
he talks about these things. If you talk even about, interestingly, if you talk about the Abravanel, which we mentioned before, after he settled in Italy, he was one of those people who, who fled uh, the, 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 the Spanish expulsion. He said at the end of times, the those who are forcibly converted will start reconnecting, will start understanding, will start returning, and have a greater understanding of their Jewish ancestry. Wow. So there's 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 fascinating, fascinating discussions that were taking uh, uh, taking place hundreds of years ago, which are basically saying what we are seeing around the world today, because it is a growing movement, and I think it's important that both sides, both of us, the Jewish people and the Hispanic and Latino people understand this because I think it can and should provide an important basis and foundation for better ties and closer uh, uh, understandings of the two communities. So so then last question, which I wasn't even thinking of going there. There are uh, among the very small handful of countries that have established their embassies in Jerusalem, of course, the United States, which did it first, and then immediately followed by Guatemala and, and Honduras. Is there any, I mean, there are a lot of political reasons and you're a great strategist and analyst, but do you, have you, have you looked at the, that, that reality from the perspective of the fact that there, are, if, if one in four Hispanics have significant Jewish roots, that there's a, that there's that, that prophetic coming back together? I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of, uh, uh, sort of pointers. First of all, do you want to hear some fascinating symmetry? There are 22 Arab members in the UN. Uh, and member states. There are 22 Spanish and Portuguese-speaking countries around the world. So there's some interesting symmetry there. I once heard from uh, a diplomat from a Latin American country, I, if I remember correctly, it was Costa Rica, who at the time where Harry Truman, the, the former president, who was uh, wavering whether to recognize uh, the state of Israel in its infancy, I think it was, I can't remember exactly how many minutes after Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the Jewish state that the president, Harry Truman, decided. And there was lots of those who were for and against. And apparently a delegation from Costa Rica came to meet with Harry Truman in the in the days before and, and told him that as people with Jewish ancestry, proud Jewish ancestry, it was time to recognize the Jewish state and made the case on that. If you look at the, the, the vital partition plan vote in the UN in 1947, who yes. are the countries who basically helped pass it? Was the Latin American countries. In Jerusalem right. today, you can see there's a whole neighborhood. I can't remember which one it is now. Um, I know, I know what you're talking about. They had that great big slide with the monster right. with three tongues. Exactly. It's, yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, but almost every other street in that neighborhood is named after a Latin Correct. American country that voted Correct. for the, the, the creation of the Jewish state in 1947. So there is a great history. Uh, very close and warm times with many, many countries. Um, and many, as I said, many, many people, especially take a country like Brazil. There's a fascinating, there's a discussion there, which hasn't taken place before. There is, there was a, a series, I think it was a year or two ago, the origins of the Brazilian people. I think it was an eight part series. One of them was specifically about the Jewish origins of the Brazilian people. And apparently it was the most watched uh, part of the series in Brazil. So it's certainly becoming far uh, more part of the conversation there. So it is a growing movement. It's a growing movement, uh, in the Latino Hispanic world, but I think it needs, it needs even, even more of a push from all of us. Awesome. Ashley, this has been a fabulous conversation. Um, even more so than I thought it would be. So thank you for that. You're going to need you. more, all the more reason to now miss not being in the same synagogue with you. Um, but but I'm glad we have this uh, this opportunity to catch up. Um, I just want to wrap up by, by a couple of last announcements. Um, always remind people that if you've stayed with us, not that you need a reward, but you deserve a reward for being with us this long. Uh, this year, we started a great pro- new program with the Genesis 123 Foundation, offering a special gift after every episode. Um, each month, we're selecting a special volume in what I call From Jonathan's Bookshelf. Uh, I, I, we just ask people to go to the inspiration from Zion social media, like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link, uh, we're going to select one person at random to win uh, to win a special volume about Israel and the history of the uh, Israel and the Jewish people. So please go and do that today. Always want to thank our podcast sponsors. First of all, the fr- our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. 
if you're in the area, I want to just go by and thank them for sponsoring and helping make conversations like this possible. Please do so. And also thanks to the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue. And if you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We always would love to hear your comments and questions as part of a dialogue and we invite you to send any questions as well, especially for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Uh, we really just finally want to ask you to share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics in and relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings to you from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Amen.